Let us continue in worship as we turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And we will read verses 1 through 9. Acts 17, 1 through 9. There is no other place I'd rather be but here with you listening to God's people sing to the glory of his name. And I hope you feel the same way this morning. Acts 17, 1 through 9. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in. And as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities was, were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. The main concern of our passage this morning, what we just read, is to show us how the Lord Jesus builds his church. And at the heart of this, there is a central question and a central answer. The question comes from the lips of Jesus himself, who asked the disciples, who do you say, what, that I am? Matthew 16, 15, that is the central question. Who do you say that I am? The central answer came from the lips of Peter, who said, Jesus, you are what? You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus said that upon that truth, upon the truth that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, he would do what? Build his church. This is the foundation of the church. We are gathered here this morning. You know why? Because Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The apostle John wrote his entire gospel, the entire gospel, so that you may believe what? One thing, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. How important is the truth that Jesus is the Christ? Apart from Jesus being the Christ, there is no church and there is no life. It makes sense then that the very heart of our passage in Acts 17 this morning is the bold proclamation of the Apostle Paul, which we see in verse 3. 
Look at verse 3. It says that he was doing what? Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is what? Is the Christ. This was the central, single-minded purpose of Paul. But even before Paul showed up in the biblical scene, Peter had already proclaimed in Acts 2.36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Later on, and as soon as Paul was converted to Christ by Christ, we read in chapter 9 of Acts, verse 22, that Paul confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving what? That Jesus was the Christ. This, brothers and sisters, is how the church is built. Now, let us remind ourselves of the context of our passage. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and Luke are still in Macedonia during Paul's second missionary journey. This would be northern Greece. In Acts 16, we left off Paul and Silas where? Do you remember? Philippi. Philippi, which was, was located in Macedonia, where they were beaten and imprisoned, and then they were released. From Philippi, they traveled approximately 30 miles west to the city of Amphipolis, and then even further west to another city called Apollonia. But they just passed through, the Bible says. Why so quickly? Why they passed through these two cities? Most likely because Paul was looking for what? A Jewish synagogue. And he didn't find a Jewish synagogue in those cities until they came to Thessalonica, which puts us in Acts 17, verse 1. Therefore, think about this, between Acts 16, verse 40, and Acts 17, verse 1, there are well over 30 miles of travel west, although the region continues to be Macedonia. Thessalonica was a very important city. Under the Roman rule, it became the capital of the entire district of Macedonia, Likely, Thessalonica was named in honor of the sister of Alexander the Great. It was a very prominent city. It was a very busy place. And in this great city, Paul found what he was looking for, a Jewish synagogue. Let me ask you this. Why is it that Paul always looked for Jewish synagogues first? Everywhere he went, he looked for Jewish synagogues. There are two very strategic reasons as to why he did this. Number one, Paul truly loved his countrymen, the Jews. He zealously desired their salvation. He prayed for them to come to the knowledge of Christ so that they might be saved, as he says in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. That's the first reason. He loved the Jewish people because he was Jewish himself. Second, if there were any serious-minded, spiritually inclined, God-fearing Gentiles in any city, Paul, Paul knew he could find them where? In the Jewish synagogue on a Sabbath day. So Paul was seeking to kill two birds with one stone. 
by going into this one place, the Jewish synagogue, he could potentially reach many, many more people. So in verse 2, we read that having found the Jewish synagogue, Paul went in as was his practice and did this for three consecutive weekends. Verses 2 and 3 tell us what Paul did once he went into the synagogue. And what do we find here? Paul's evangelistic method. Paul's evangelistic method. He took three steps to evangelize his audience. First, Paul reasoned with his audience. Paul made an immediate appeal to the mind, not to the emotions. In essence, we could say that Paul preached. How did Paul preach? I'm going to tell you how he preached. He preached like Ezra. Ezra in the Old Testament. One day, after the Babylonian exile, the people of Israel gathered with one exclusive purpose, to hear the law of the Lord read to them. Who did this? Ezra, being a priest, was in charge of this task and reading the law before the people of Israel. Now, listen to what happened. Listen to how the Bible describes what happened. Here's the, the Israelite worship service. It says in Nehemiah chapter 8, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, and he read from it from early morning until midday. That was a long worship service. Don't complain about a long sermon, brothers. Okay? We have biblical president here. And he read from it from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And Ezra, the scribe, listen to this, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. Yeah? Sound familiar? A wooden platform that they made for the purpose. And then it says this, that they read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. That's Nehemiah chapter 8. This was a well-established practice in the Jewish community. They took the law of God, and they sought to understand it, to make sense of it. Paul then, like Ezra, went in the synagogue in Thessalonica, and he reasoned with the people in it. We must remember, brothers and sisters, that Christianity is a religion of the mind. Of the mind, we are called to love God with what? All our mind. Therefore, Paul reasoned with both Jews and Gentiles because Christianity is not a blind leap of faith as if in order to be a Christian, you need to put your reason on hold. Not at all. Christianity is a reasonable faith. As I said last week, we all have an understanding, but we must sanctify our understanding. How do we do this? How do we sanctify our reasoning? Well, notice in verse 2, once again, the source of Paul's reasoning. He stood upon scriptures. He stood upon scriptures, meaning, what were the scriptures back then? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. Remember that. Paul reasoned or gave the sense of Scripture to his audience. He took the Old Testament and he reasoned from the Old Testament. Why? Because that's where the authority is. That's where the authority and the power are. This was Paul's only source of authority. And this, brothers and sisters, is very, very important. 
Paul was not abandoning the Jewish Old Testament scriptures or coming up with new material when he went into the Jewish synagogue. Rather, as the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles gathered in that Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica, Paul taught them what? The proper interpretation of the Old Testament, which takes us into verse 3. What was Paul's ultimate objective in reasoning from the Old Testament scriptures? He sought to prove the identity of one person. He sought to prove the identity of one person, Christ. Christ. You know what the Bible teaches us? We're not the center of the world. We're not even the center of our own lives. It is all about Christ. It is all about Christ. The Christ was central to Old Testament scriptures. What is Christ? Christ is a title, not a first name. It's a title, not a first name. It means anointed one, which in the Hebrew is the word Messiah. So Greek, Christ, Hebrew, Messiah, and it means anointed one. In the Old Testament, anointing had mostly to do with kings. Kings. Both Saul and David were anointed with oil to be set apart for that role. Therefore, the concept of Messiah or a Christ had to do primarily with the role of a savior and king. As the Old Testament unfolded, this messianic figure was linked more directly to the line of David. The Christ would be one of his descendants, the Bible says. And this Christ would do one primary thing, bring freedom to God's people. Now, I want you to think of the magnitude of what Paul does in verse 3. Let's read it again. Explaining and proving, he's, he's standing before the people in the Jewish synagogue, and he explained and proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Consider the magnitude of what Paul is doing. Remember in verse 2, we read that Paul reasoned with them from where? From the Old Testament scriptures. This being the case, then what does verse 3 reveal? Verse 3 gives us, listen to this, don't miss this, gives us in summary form the conclusion toward which the entire Old Testament was moving. In other words, verse 3 provides the essential key for proper Old Testament interpretation. And this essential key for proper Old Testament interpretation is threefold. First, the first key for proper Old Testament interpretation has to do with the Christ, and it's this. The Christ was not an afterthought. The Christ was not an afterthought. Look at verse 3. There is a word there, necessary. Necessary. That's a very strong word. It was necessary. The Christ had to come and do what he did because the scriptures cannot be what? Broken. The scriptures cannot be broken. This is similar to what Peter said in Acts chapter 1, verse 16, regarding Judas' betrayal of Jesus and his fall into darkness. How did Peter explain Judas' fall? He said, brothers, the scripture concerning Judas had to be what? 
fulfilled. It was necessary for Judas to fall. It was necessary for Judas to betray Jesus. Why? Because the scriptures cannot be broken. It was necessary. Likewise, here in verse 3, Paul says it was necessary. Why? Because God had promised. He had promised in the Old Testament. Listen carefully to Romans chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. This is what Paul said. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart for what? The gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through whom? His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son. The gospel of Christ was promised in the Old Testament. And when God promises, the fulfillment is a necessity. is necessary because God's word, remember, cannot be broken. If God says he will do this, it becomes a necessity because his word is never broken. The second essential key for proper Old Testament interpretation is that the Christ who would come from the line of David had to do Two specific things suffer through death and rise again. Suffer through death and rise again. Sadly, brothers and sisters, this suffering death concept was what for the Jewish people? A stumbling block. They stumbled over this. The suffering and the suffering Messiah, this idea. It was a stumbling block for the Jews. They had rejected the idea of a suffering Christ. Now, let me prove this to you. In Matthew chapter 16, after Jesus had explained to his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and be killed, and then be raised, how did Peter respond? He had the audacity to rebuke the Lord Jesus. What did he say? Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You shall never suffer. You shall never die. You see, a suffering Christ, a suffering king, or a suffering Messiah was not a part of the Jewish mindset by the time Jesus appeared. They were expecting political power and deliverance from a strong political leader. In fact, anything would have been more acceptable than a suffering, dying Christ. So Jesus had to rebuke both Peter in an ultimate sense, who? Satan. Satan for seeking to prevent Jesus from fulfilling his role as Christ, which meant he had to, it was necessary for him to suffer and die. Listen to how Jesus responded to Peter. Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, Peter, your understanding of the Christ, the way you're thinking of the Christ is earthly, even demonic. Demonic. God has revealed something different, Peter. Peter, do not lean on your own, what? Understanding. Rather, Peter, remember the scriptures. Submit your understanding, your thinking to the scriptures. What Paul is saying in verses 2 and 3 then is this. Don't miss this. If you miss, he tells his audience, his Greek and Jewish audience, if you miss death and resurrection as the key component of the role of the Christ announced in the Old Testament, then you miss the entire flow of the Old Testament scriptures. Is that a big deal? Yes. Yes. I'm glad we agree. 
I'm glad we agree. 1,500 years of history and theological writing in the Old Testament pointing to this one thing, that the Christ would suffer and rise again. If you missed that, you missed the entire Old Testament. And if you persist in denying death and resurrection as being at the center of the Messiah's role, then you will miss him completely because that Christ has already come. And this is the third component, uh, uh, the, the essential key for proper Old Testament interpretation. Okay, it is this. The Christ had a name. He has a name. Jesus, the man from Nazareth. If you miss Jesus, if you miss Jesus, you miss the Old Testament. It is as if Paul were saying to his audience in that Jewish synagogue, don't let the Old Testament pass you by. But did you notice what Paul is eager to do in verse 3? If you, if you haven't noticed, I'm, I'm going to tell you. Paul is eager to demonstrate not only the centrality of the Christ to the Old Testament, but he's also eager to point out the historicity of Christ. Christ is a person whose first name is what? Is Jesus. A person whose first name is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Can you actually go to that town? Yes. He was actually born of a woman. He had a father. He lived in a town with actual dirt roads on which he actually walked with his own feet. Before he died, he actually had a conversation with Pontius Pilate. And nails were actually driven through his hands and through his feet. Actual blood ran down his body. That's the Christ. This person that I'm telling you about, this Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, that's him. That's him. We need this teaching today. Maybe more so than ever. If the danger for the Jews and the Gentiles back in the first century was to miss the historical appearing of the Christ in the person of Jesus, you know what our danger is today? Our danger is to redefine the identity of the Christ altogether as if Christ were nothing more than an abstract human ideal. And there are people doing that today. Very fa famous teachers. Very, fa very popular. They're popularizing an idea of the Christ that is completely contrary to Scripture. The Christ, my friends, the Christ is not a mythical hero that simply represents the battle between good and evil. He is not that. Nor is Christ an invitation. Listen, Christ is not an invitation for you to be strong in your own strength and become the hero of your own narrative. What I'm trying to say is very simple, is this. You are not the Christ. You are not the Christ. Neither am I. We should all as Christians be the first to say with one loud voice what John the Baptist said when he confessed and did not deny but confessed. I am not the Christ. Brothers and sisters and friends. You're not the hero of your own story. 
You are not the hero of your own story. We never will be. I wish Jordan Peterson knew this. We're not the hero. For the Apostle Paul, the Christ was an actual human being who had a first name. Like, like you have a first name, right? Don't you? Right. Because you're a real person. Christ had a real name, Jesus. And this Jesus is the Christ. He was a historical figure. And that man in the flesh was the Christ, the Messiah, the one anointed, set apart to be Savior and King. Through his actual bodily death, physical blood, and subsequent bodily resurrection, he saves sinners because he did all that for human sinners. And he did so in history as an actual human being. And that historical event, that Jesus of whom Paul spoke, is the Christ. And he is our salvation. So Paul is saying, don't miss the Savior. He has already come. Why is the historicity of Jesus Christ so essential? Why is it important that we don't believe that he was a mythical figure? Why is it so important that he was a historical man? It is essential because without the Christ being Jesus of Nazareth, that historical man, we would all still be dead in our sins and we would be hopeless. We would be hopeless. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And what did Jesus die as a human? He died. As a human, he died in his own body. It was his own blood. Therefore, when Paul preached and said, this Jesus is the Christ, he was calling his audience to trust, to believe, to come to faith in that historical person. That's the call of the gospel. So what happened? Let's keep going. Two responses. Two responses to this message of the historical Jesus being the Christ. The first is faith. Faith. What is faith? Faith is a gift from God, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Now, I need you to have your Bibles ready because we're going to do some, some Bible study here, okay? Uh, the events uh, in the synagogue in Thessalonica give evidence of how the gift of faith is given. Now, who was listening to Paul? Feel free to participate. Jews, thank you, Micah, and Greeks, Gentiles, okay? Who believed? Well, a little bit of the Jews, a whole bunch of the Gentiles. But if we answer that question theologically, who believed? Those who were given faith. Verse 4, and some of them, the them refers to the Jews, some of them were persuaded. They believed that Jesus is the Christ. They believed the message of Paul. And joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout, devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Verse 4 is important for it gives us a sense of the true impact and force with which the gospel entered Macedonia through its capital city and how the church was established there in Thessalonica. Some Jews were persuaded and many Gentiles believed, a great number. And who were these people? People of influence, leading women, leading, leading women, probably wives of political authorities in Thessalonica. The point is this. Don't miss this point. It's important. On that day, as Paul preached that Jesus is the Christ, a church was born. A church was born. Upon that message, 
Jesus is the Christ. A church was born. And who builds the church? Thank goodness is not us. I don't. You don't. It is the Lord Jesus. He said he would. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter, the gospel of Luke. The third gospel in your Bibles. And let's go together to chapter 24. I want us to put these events in Thessalonica under the microscope, as it were, and see why these people believed. I want us to consider together verses 44 through 49 of Luke 24. Here's the microscope. We're we're putting a a magnifying glass on the events of, of Acts 17. After rising from the dead... And before his ascension to the Father, Jesus appeared to his disciples. And what did he say? He said this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be what? Fulfilled. Why? Because the word of God cannot be broken. Right? It was necessary. And then... What did he do? He opened their minds to understand Scripture. He opened their minds to understand Scripture and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance from, for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Now let's go back to Acts chapter 17 verse 4. It says that many believed, both Jews and Greeks. Why? For the same reason the disciples understood the Scriptures. Jesus opened their minds. Without divine power, brothers and sisters, the Scriptures remain close. On that day, however, in Thessalonica, the capital city of Macedonia, as Paul reasoned with the Jews and the Gentiles from the Old Testament and explained that the Christ was Jesus as evidence in his death on the cross and resurrection. It was the Lord himself who opened their eyes. Jesus unlocked the true meaning of Old Testament scriptures so that they could see faith once again is the gift of God. Those people were added to the church by Christ himself. Paul preached. Paul preached. Amen? But only Jesus can save, can save, amen? Much of what Paul writes to the Thessalonians in his first letter to them is a reference to this moment. Please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I want us to read verse 13 in light of the events that we're discussing in Acts 17 in Thessalonica. Remember, he wrote a letter to them after the church had been established And here Paul is remembering the moment of their conversion to Christ. And this verse, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, shines a glorious light upon these events. Paul says to the Thessalonians, and we also thank God constantly for this. Notice, don't miss this, it's important. That when you received the word of God, when did they receive the word of God? In Acts 17, right? In Thessalonica, when when he went to the synagogue. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Did you hear that? Paul gave thanks to God for the fact 
that the Thessalonians believed what Paul said that day in the synagogue and received it as being God's word. Consider the two massive implications of this. First, if the Thessalonians received Paul's words, what he said in verse 3 in the synagogue, as God's word, then that means Paul's Christ-centered interpretation of the Old Testament was seen by them as authoritative. As authoritative. They recognized, as they were listening to Paul in that synagogue, they recognized that Paul had been commissioned by Christ Jesus to speak with divine authority as were the other apostles. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. This is God's word. Second implication. It also means that the faith of the Thessalonians, the faith in the word of God was itself the work of God. Their eyes were opened by grace. Their eyes were opened by grace. So what then is the supreme mark that a person's eyes have been opened to the truth and that faith has been granted? It is this, Jesus is seen as Lord. Jesus is seen as Lord. Do you believe that Jesus is both Lord and Christ? As Peter said, if yes, then rejoice and give thanks, for this is the work of God in you. Now, sadly, not all those in the audience were given eyes to see. Here we see the second response. What was the second response? Jealousy. Jealousy. While many believed Paul's message concerning the Christ, in verse 5, we read that the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. We don't know much about Jason. But he must have been a good man, a nice guy who received the apostles, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, meaning the apostles, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here to Thessalonica also. And Jason has received them, and they all are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Does this chaotic scene remind you of another chaotic scene? It, it reminded me of one. It reminded me of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice two parallels. First, Jason welcomed the apostles in his house, just like Lot did the angels. And second, the angry mob outside went straight to Jason's house to get the apostles out and put them at the mercy of the mob, just like the Sodomites wanted to do with the angels. But there is one major difference. The difference is this. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were acting wickedly against God's angelic messengers. The people in Thessalonica were acting wickedly against God's own son as seen in their mistreatment of God's apostolic messengers. They hated Christ. They hated Christ. Who? The Jews. 
Their apostasy was put in full display in their willingness to join hands with the pagan magistrates of the Roman Empire, which is exactly what they did with Jesus. The Jews plotted with the Romans to destroy Jesus. Now we see the Jews once again plotting with the Romans to destroy the body of Jesus, the church. Notice also the charge that was brought against them. They were being accused, the apostles, they were being accused of treason. Treason against the Roman Empire. They are preaching a king greater than the emperor. Therefore, the money as security that is mentioned in verse 9 is either a type of bail or a means of protection against further charges against them. But this is how Christians were perceived. They were turning the world upside down. They were almost thought of as revolutionaries. They ruffled feathers everywhere. Why? Because they spoke about one with comprehensive authority in heaven and on earth. The true Christ, the true Savior, the true King, Jesus, the one who died and rose Again, and the Jews were jealous, but not to Paul's surprise, not to Paul's surprise. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. I want to show you something. The Jews were jealous. They hated the Lord Jesus. They hated the message of Christ. They hated the apostles who brought the message of Christ. But it had been foretold in the Old Testament scriptures that a time would come in which the Jews, by and large, would no longer be able to see or hear the truth. What does that mean? They would actually, it was foretold that they would miss the Christ. They would miss the Christ. As Paul himself says in Romans chapter 11, verse 7 and 8, most of the Jews were hardened. Hardened. As it is what? Written. Can the, can the promises of God, can the word of God be broken? No, it was necessary because it had been written. As it is written, God, God gave them a spirit of stupor. To whom? The, the, the Jews. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Please notice this truth. God gave them eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear. The jealousy that we see in Acts 17 and running through the entire book of Acts was part of the divine plan. Therefore, the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul preached on that day in Thessalonica was to the Jewish ears hateful, offensive, a stumbling block. And the evidence is displayed in what they did. Upon seeing the impact, that the preaching of Paul had upon those in the synagogue, they became jealous. You see, the Jews wanted power. They wanted authority. They wanted influence, but not according to the truth. They wanted to lead, but not under Christ, the head. Now, if Acts chapter 17, verses 5 and, and through 7, show us what the behavior of the Jews was, they were jealous, I want us to take that behavior now and I want us to put it under the microscope just as we did the gift of faith. Where is the microscope? Turn your Bibles to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. 
this passage by James is the microscope. Why? It goes right into the inner workings of jealousy. What is jealousy? Where does it come from? Oh, you're going to be surprised by the strong words of James. Beginning in verse 13, James 3, 13 through 16. James asks, who is wise and understanding among you? Would you like to answer that question? Uh, you want to raise your hands? Don't do it. Please don't do it. Who is wise and understanding among you by his what? Not his knowledge? By his conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter, what? Jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. You can deny the truth by your works, by your actions, by your behavior. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be what? Disorder and every vile practice. Let me ask you this. Did we see disorder in Thessalonica? Yeah, they, they grabbed all the people they could, formed a mob, and brought the city into an uproar. Created by whom? By the Jews. Why? They were jealous. Jealousy and selfish ambition create disorder, division, uproar. Jealousy is desperate. Jealousy is always desperate. And all of this is a clear sign of what? Demonic influence. Demonic influence. Oh, my friends, as a general word of counsel, heed the following before you listen to any voice. And he complained, coming either from a man or a mob, consider first and foremost their conduct. You will know them. By what? By their fruits. If the conduct is divisive and angry, know for certain that it is not from the Spirit of God. We must beware. But clearly then, the conduct of the Jewish, of the Jewish people proved beyond, beyond a shadow of doubt Listen to this, that the synagogue in Thessalonica had become a synagogue of Satan. Demons had taken over. Demons had taken over. Thankfully, in the economy of God and on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of our Lord can never be defeated. In the midst of of the Satan-inspired attack, there's good news. What did Jesus say in response to Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? He said this, upon this rock, upon that truth, I will build my church. And then he said this, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Demonic jealousy and selfish ambition like what we saw in Thessalonica, which resulted in disorder and conflict, those things were not able to stop the church from being built. Why? Because Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. What is the lesson for us? Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we are almost to the end. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I want to draw uh, an important lesson for us as we consider how the world is, seems to be so friendly to darkness 
and there is so much insanity going on around us, it can be overwhelming and discouraging. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, as Paul remembered his ministry in Thessalonica and reflected on that work, here's what he said to those believers later on in his letter. He said this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as we already know and you know, says he, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of what? Much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. In other words, brothers and sisters, this gospel ministry is not about accommodating to the world to tickle man's ears. It is about spreading and proclaiming the truth. The lesson this is as follows. Let us not be discouraged by the conflict that surrounds the battle for the truth. Rather, let us remain bold for the sake of of the gospel and God's elect. How does Christ build his church then? It is very simple. It is very simple. His people proclaim his death and resurrection, proving that he's both Christ and Lord. The calling of God goes forth. The elect believe and darkness can make noise and create conflict, but it cannot and will not prevail. If you are desiring a Christianity without conflict, then you don't understand Christianity because Jesus, being the Christ, is Lord of all, and the world is in conflict with this. We need to understand this. The world is in conflict with the proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord of all. The world is in conflict with our message because Jesus is Lord over our lives, every single area of it, including our sexuality. Jesus is Lord. So in light of the ever-present temptation to compromise, with which we all go through, to compromise our faith in order to preserve the peace with the world, I finish by reminding you of the ever-present choice before our eyes, always. On that day in Thessalonica, the Thessalonians were given a command implicit in the text. If you have become persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, then repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, and follow him. Yes, said Paul, in the midst of all this conflict, it will cost you. And the Thessalonians suffered because they believed that Jesus is Lord. Either go with the mob, said Paul. Either go with the mob. Or follow Jesus. But do not try to stand in the middle. So just as Joshua challenged the Israelites at Shechem, I challenge us, all of us, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, 
But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Church, let us follow Jesus at all costs, for he and he alone is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this basic reminder once again. I thank you, Lord, that ultimately we do not trust in our own wisdom, our own understanding, but we trust in you. We don't trust in political power. We don't trust in social reform. We only trust in you, in your gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he is the one who suffered for our sins on the cross and rose again. And may all, all glory, all honor, and all power be given unto him, both now and forever. In his name we pray. Amen.